0: AND ANSWERS Critical theory dominates our culture today. This is the main ideology of the university campuses, the media, and even the church. The roots of critical theory is Marxism, and this ideology poses a major threat to our culture today. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and his guest, Dr. Corey Miller, will conclude their discussion of critical theory and how Christians should meet this challenge.
1: Most people just aren't aware of the nuances behind the rhetoric of Compassion and social justice they're thinking something else than what what the Christian has traditionally thought and what the Bible espouses. In fact, if you take it to its logical conclusion, one of the greatest hegemonic powers and hegemony is a, a term used in that theory, a way of persuading the masses and keeping them controlled and, and dominated is the bible itself it's the ultimate meta narrative and this is one of the biggest differences between christianity and this movement is both are meta narratives they're both giving a description about humanity about the world our knowledge of things and about what the good life is but they're not merely giving a descriptive statement like you would in sociology it's become normative and prescriptive And the Christianity and the Bible itself as the ultimate hegemonic oppressor, teaching the patriarchy and, you know, heteronormativity and God being the ultimate authority, that's not equality. He is the sovereign king. There are a lot of fundamental differences here that a lot of people just aren't picking up.
2: Yes. Now, Corey, you talked about this is rampant throughout our high schools and our universities. Uh, You got a great college ministry there. You're on the Uh, numerous university campuses. How do you see this affecting the high schools and the university campuses?
1: It is the reigning paradigm right now in the United States. Uh, It's in agencies of government. It is at the grade school levels, K through 12, and it has long been in academia. Uh, For Christians who are engaged in Christian apologetics or those who have heard of the new atheism, that you know has been around for about 20 years with Richard Dawkins and other people, that stuff is passe now. It's old, it's mold, it's not as powerful as this movement is, and in fact, those people are even shaking in their boots because this new movement has not only emerged through the slime and the goo and the zoo in, in the humanities, but it evolved into a Frankenstein that's reached over across to the natural sciences and now they can't control it, and they're wondering what to do, what to do. So every university now is getting a DI personnel, which stands for diversity, inclusivity, and equity. And when you get that, it spells the death of the institution. It may be longer and drawn out than you might think, but it will spell the death of the institution. It has literally infiltrated every strata of society now, including corporate America. What you see happening right now, once you understand critical theory and social justice here, you can't unsee it, it's literally everywhere. In fact, if your listeners want to know more, we were the first um, ministry in the United States to publish a significant piece on this from a critical thinking perspective, from a Christian perspective, on engaging critical theory in the social justice movement. Uh, People could just Google uh, engaging critical theory in the social justice movement. They'll see the Roscio Christi link or go to our website, roshiochristi.org, and they can get a 30-page downloadable free booklet on this idea.
2: Yeah, you talked about that if this uh, movement gets a strong foothold on the university campuses, it's the death of the institution. Tell us about it. What's the ultimate end of the institution then?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, Jonathan Haidt, who is New York Times best-selling author and an NYU professor of psychology, he claims to be an, a leftist atheist Jew, who now is considered a moderate because the goalposts have become so radical to the left side. Yeah. Uh, but he has an organization called the Heterodox Academy. That means other beliefs, that means viewpoint diversity. I'm a member as I've been a professor of ethics for some time and Jonathan Haidt, he writes on this area. He's got a great lecture if you YouTube, uh, his lecture at Duke University two years ago, three years ago, where the modern university is at a crossroads. Either it pursues truth, which was its original ethos or goal or purpose for the university, Or it pursues social justice, but it cannot do both. Either our universities are going to be truth universities or social justice universities. They cannot be both.
2: Yeah, why is that the case?
1: Because social justice has a particular view even over the sciences, even over mathematics, even over logic. The goal is not the pursuit of truth because truth truly cannot be known. Knowledge, according to these thinkers, is a social construction of reality all knowledge, my identity, my gender, it's all a social construction of reality. So when we used to think about objective truth, the truth exists and it's knowable, and then the naturalist paradigm took over and took over the universities between 1880 and 1930, knowledge was still objective, only scientific knowledge now, of course, right? They think, but it's still objective. You can still debate. Debate is not hate. Well, that was then. Debate now is hate. Logic, even, is a Western imperialist, colonialist tool for those in power to keep other people down. When I was touring four universities last year with a prominent atheist author who would be my arch enemy on ultimate worldview issues, typically, we've now united on this issue and we spoke at university campuses on viewpoint diversity the death of intellectual in the universities and one university almost canceled us, almost disinvited us because we were called logical fascists. We were coming to use reason. We were calling it to question this critical theory and social justice. And you do not question, thou shalt not have viewpoint diversity, even at the university. I mean the bottom line here is this, Pat, during the Enlightenment period and beyond and in through pre-modernism to modernism to recent times, we could understand Voltaire, the deist statement, which was, I may disagree with what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. Not anymore, we now follow Stalin. Ideas are more powerful than guns, we don't allow our enemies to have guns, so why should we let them have ideas? That's why it spells the death of the university, and as goes the university, so goes the culture. It's the death of civilization if this thing takes root too much. This is a very pernicious and dangerous, seditious ideology that's infiltrated the Western world.
2: Yeah, you know, one of the things that confuses me as I read on this subject is, you know, without truth, then who determines right and wrong? Who determines what is just and unjust? I mean, how how do we define justice here and if we're getting closer to the mark if there is no Absolute objective kind of truth.
1: Right. And now, this is where in postmodernism, which is oftentimes characterized by relativism, not just in ethics, but also in epistemology or the theory of knowledge, right? Knowledge is a social construction of reality. Well, in postmodernism, that is. True, quote unquote, because there is no truth, right, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, all truth is what my peers will let me get away with, one postmodern philosopher said. But in critical theory, social justice, identity politics, neo Marxism, it's all the same stuff. In that viewpoint, they realized some time back that, oh my gosh, if we take this deconstructivism in postmodernism to its logical conclusion, It means that critical theory and social justice are also not true. So we have to stop somewhere, and so they arbitrarily adopt a theory of knowledge called standpoint epistemology or standpoint theory. That is, your knowledge is granted, you're granted access, most brilliant and bright and incisive access based on your social location. Are you oppressed gender? Oppressed sex, oppressed economic, oppressed race. The more of those oppression points you can get, the more you can see. And so these people, contrary to their postmodern cousins, there's a lot of overlap here. They do believe there is objective truth, but it's esoteric. It's secret knowledge. In critical race theory, we might call it ethnic Gnosticism. This is a logical fallacy if there ever was one, and it's committed at the level of every one of those categories, race, class, sex, gender, etc. You're familiar with it in the abortion argument. Males have nothing to contribute to the abortion argument. My body, my choice. That's their social location. Likewise in race. Likewise in class. Likewise in gender. So you become woke, and you can see objective truth, but only if you stand in the right social location.
2: reminds me of a dialogue I was having with uh, one of the students who was black and, you know, he got heated calling me a racist. I forgot what the topic was. I can't really remember. And so we were talking through the whole thing and I said, what makes you say that the school is racist? You know, and it got to the point where he was saying, well, unless you're in my shoes, you'll never see it or you'll never understand. Yeah. And A lot of us, we're not white, you know, and we're just looking at them saying, okay, well, we we still don't get it. But now it makes sense what you're saying here.
1: Yes, and, and we're familiar with some of this esoteric or secret knowledge. For the Mormon, if you don't read the King James, you're not reading the correct version. For the Muslim, if you have criticism against the Quran, they'll question whether or not you're reading from the Arabic or in Hindu apologetics in the Sanskrit right? There's always this esoteric secret zone for, for knowledge. And even if, let's say we're talking critical race theory, even if you're black and you look at this theory and you say, this is stupid. This is ridiculous. I'm black and I disagree with it. They will point back at you and say, you know what? You are suffering from internalized oppression. You can't see it because you haven't become fully woke. You lack what Marx would have called liberational consciousness. So even if you are a female and you give an argument for pro-life, they're going to say, according to reproductive justice, social justice, you're adopting the male point of view. Even if you're gay and you say, I don't agree with this stuff. I'm gay, uh, I'm, but I'm, I don't agree with gay or something like that. They say you're adopting the heteronormative viewpoint and you don't even see it. You poor, blind non-woke individual. So they've got an answer for that even if you have a token, male, gay, woman, non-Christian, non-whatever, and it's simply, you don't buy the narrative.
2: Oh, So basically, it seems like if you don't agree with us, then you're not woke. Yeah. You're not enlightened.
1: Yeah. And the way they get us to believe all this stuff is through a hegemonic discourse. It's through language. Language fixes reality for these folks. This is the part that comes out of postmodernism. It's a hermeneutic. It's a way of putting on a paradigm, and you change the language, and you change the discussion. You change the terminology, even if you keep the same terms, but you change the meaning, and then you continually just reiterate it, and reiterate it, and reiterate it through the left, and through the right, and from the top, and from the bottom, and you take over other vocabularies and start to modify the meaning, that's how they make their inroads. And so that's why they're able to get into Christianity and say, what would Jesus do? Hate or celebrate? Or they would say, do you want to be a racist? No, no, it's worse to be called a racist than even a rapist today. No, I'm not a racist. Oh, so do you want to be anti-racist? Yeah, yeah, I'll be anti-racist. Where do I sign? Right here. And then as soon as you sign, they tell you what that means. The book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by uh, Ibram X. Kendi, he says you can't be an anti-racist without being an anti-capitalist. And you can't be an anti-capitalist without being an anti-racist. And you can't be an anti-racist without being non-transphobic and so forth. Remember, it's intersectionality. You've got to have all of them eventually. And this is why when Ibrahim Kendi was here speaking at, at Purdue a little while ago, Someone said, I'm really, I'm really feeling guilty about this. I'm white. I've committed horrible sins here. How do I fix this? And he said, look, if you're passionate about anything, there's a racial component in everything, he said. For example, he says, if you're passionate about climate change, well, guess who gets most impacted by global warming? Those in the global south or those who are in minoritized classes. So everything even the weather is now racial.
2: Wow. You also talked about it really infiltrating and shaping what's going on in the church and in the seminaries where a lot of our leaders are trained. Tell us how is it affecting church and the seminaries?
1: Well, it's unfortunate, but because we are living in what R.C. Sproul once called the most anti-intellectual period in the church age. We have been so busy loving God with our hands or our hearts, we have long ago excommunicated the head. We haven't been loving God with our minds as Jesus commanded us to do. And so we're not prepared for this stuff. A lot of churches, unfortunately, are more into skinny jeans and fog machines than they are into truth and <laughs> in the scriptures. In fact, what they do is they begin with sociology and culture rather than theology and scripture. And so our church leaders in many ways are not preparing our people for this. And it's happening at the seminaries as well. This philosophy is so subtle and in academic societies and so forth. And again, it co-ops the Christian language of ethics and it focuses intently on guilt manipulation on the sentiments of oppression and victimization everything's about being a victim. And the more points you can score as a double or triple or quadruple victim, the more attention you get and the more moral authority you get. And and those who are outside of that just need to listen and waller in in their guilt. And so it's not just about racial reconciliation, it's about reparation and it's about revenge. This may have to take 400 years. It's poison to racial reconciliation.
2: Yeah, you said the church begins with sociology and, I forgot your other term, theology. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was a great point.
1: First heard that perhaps from Vodi Bacham, who is an African-American pastor and theologian, teaches on this topic too, and he's now living back in Africa. But it is that many Christians start with sociology and culture rather than theology and scripture. And that's a major problem. So we end up reading into the text rather than allowing the text to interpret itself. And then we put that lens on to interpret culture. It's doing eisegesis, not exegesis. And that word exegesis comes from the same root as hegemony, hegemonic power, hegemonic discourse, hegemonia in Greek.
2: Yeah, and then, It's
1: uh, a hermeneutic. Yeah. It's a theory of interpretation.
2: Yeah, and I think the result is the church ends up focusing on things like social justice and these other activities, which which may be great, but the focus on making disciples, you know, true disciples of Christ goes to the wayside, and we end up in all these social justice kind of issues. Right. Well, what is it then that the church needs to do then to stand against critical theory and really uh turn the ship here
1: well if i can use the expression we've got a long march back through the institutions and it's not just through the university institutions it's also in the churches now it's not just that the barbarians are at the gates they're in the citadel and so it's going to begin with pastors and parents preparing themselves and you know this area of apologetics of defending the faith it's not just a command in scripture, it still is a command, but it's back in demand even by most recent polls. People want answers. They want to have plausible reasons if they're going to be taking serious interest in Christianity. We need to quit with the skinny jeans and fog machines. We need to put that on a back seat way back in the back of the classroom. We need to start investigating truth again and loving God with our minds. and. Christian pastors, as the shepherds, need to be caring for the flock enough to take themselves out of their hands and heart comfort zone and uh, reigniting the fellowship with the head because the true Christian loves God with head, heart, and hands. And you need to study this stuff. Paul said to beware of false philosophy, but you can't beware of it if you're not even aware of it. And so these ideas need to be investigated. These things are stealing the sheep right now, and they're stealing entire pastors and then taking the flock away. Parents need to be looking at this. So we've got that resource once again: engaging critical theory in the social justice movement, org. That's one place to go. There are now books that are starting to come out on this. Once you start seeing this stuff, you can't unsee it. But before you can do something about it, you need to be aware of what it is. People have to educate themselves. Stay in scripture, but also engage in Christian thought, in Christian theological thinking about many of these different subversive movements.
2: Yes, you know, a lot of pastors think, well, if I just preach through the scriptures, everything will be fine. And preaching through the scriptures, expositional preaching is great. That's definitely, you know, the foundation of where we need to be. But you bring up a great point where we need to also address the ideas and engage the ideas that dominate our culture today, because, you know, they're really infiltrating the church and shaping the thinking of a lot of People in the church who are in the world, you know, Monday through Friday.
1: Right. And it's so subtle. Even the term critical theory, theory, the first four letters of theory means God. It's a God's eye point of view, it's a meta narrative. And so this is something real, whether you've heard the term before or not is irrelevant. A lot of Christians don't even read their Bibles, and yet they can know certain Christian doctrines because they hear the conclusions. You may not know the term critical theory. That, that makes the average academic's eyes glaze over. If you hear neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism, you may think, ah, conspiracy theory. If you hear identity politics, you might think, oh, that's just too political. If you hear social justice and someone opposing it, well, maybe that means you just hate the poor. No, these things, this is a false philosophy that has invaded the West in America right now in the politics. It's not Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative anymore. That's old America. This is something born from the outside that's come in. This is the new left, the social justice left, the Marxist left. They're putting in check even the old left so that I now have more in common sometimes with classical liberal atheists than i do with certain christians that are in leadership positions they've drunk the kool-aid
2: yes wow now you talk about one of the resources out there is ratio christi great resource for pastors out there sitting there going wow man look i i just don't have time or the expertise in these kinds of arenas but your ministry does ratio christi great ministry there on the campuses tell us about ratio christi
1: Ratio Christi means the reason of Christ, and it is about apologetics evangelism, Uh, that is providing reasons for the hope that's within us, removing obstacles from people's minds that face objections against Christianity. We're not fat heads, we we love to nerd out about this stuff, but we're not fat heads, Uh, we wanna give the gospel, but people have questions, they've got objections. So we wanna be able to remove those objections and present a gospel pure and simple. We do it on the campus because if there's anywhere that's the most influential institution in civilization, it is the university. As goes the university, so goes the culture. And so that's why if you find pollution downstream, you gotta go upstream and it's at the university. So that's what we're trying to do. Uh, We're on campuses all over the world. We need to get more movement happening in Hawaii there. But we're on campuses all over the world trying to make things happen and take back essentially or at least advance the, the mind of Christ on the university campuses, which they all once were. The universities were started by Christians, and there are a variety of reasons for that. But we want to have a serious, plausible Christianity presented at the universities. We want to be about thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today, changing culture tomorrow.
2: Yes, and how many uh, university campuses are you on now?
1: In the U.S., we're about 125, and then we've got wow. movements in Canada, South Africa, a study center in the U.K., even a master's in apologetics in the Philippines, uh, Pakistan, Malaysia, several other places, but we're, we're only about 10 years old this month, in fact. It's our 10-year anniversary, and we're already arguing cases in the Supreme Court as well <laughs> about free speech and viewpoint diversity. So I think God is really part of this movement, and I'm excited to be a part of it.
2: Yes, and that's Ratio Christi, or you can go to ratiochristi.org. A tremendous website there, blogs, articles, seminars, a whole bunch of resources there, uh, not only for college students, but also for churches. So you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Corey Miller, who is the president and CEO of Ratio Christi. And you can listen to this whole interview, if you missed a bunch of it, uh, only got to hear a part of it at our website there at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. So, Corey, thanks for being on Evidence and Answers once again.
1: Thanks again, Pat. Glad to partner with you.
0: We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat (laughs) Zucrat.